Hello, I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm the CEO and president of the Nixon Foundation. This is the second in our 50th anniversary look back at critical events of the Nixon administration. The first I did was on Watergate with Jeff Shepard, part of President Nixon's legal defense team from the beginning to the end of Watergate. And you can watch all nine episodes of that at the nixonfoundation.org. Today, my special guest is James Rosen, who you know from many, many years on television, but you probably may not remember that he's the author of the award-winning, extraordinarily detailed and wonderful book, The Strongman, a biography he's holding up right now about none other than John Mitchell. Richard Nixon's, well, if he had, uh, let me ask you, Jane, how would you describe John Mitchell? Because uh, I think most people don't remember much about him. Well, Hugh, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, John Mitchell is best remembered as the 67th Attorney General of the United States. Uh, he was the top law enforcement officer in the Nixon administration for the years 1969 to 1972, and they were very violent and scary time in American life. Beyond that, John Mitchell was had been Richard Nixon's law partner for the successful 1968 presidential campaign. Um, and uh, after his controversial attorney generalship, Mitchell uh, goes down in history as being the highest ranking U.S. official ever to serve a prison sentence due to his convictions, his criminal convictions, in the Watergate cover-up. Uh, so he's a historic figure and someone whose friendship meant a lot to Richard Nixon and whose downfall, uh, I think, anguished Richard Nixon until his final days. You know, James Rosen, one of the most interesting aspects of when we meet, we meet in my Beltway studio and during the time of the coronavirus, when many state and local governments are under extraordinary pressure because they have indebted themselves via something called the trust bond, that instrument of municipal finance invented by none other than John Mitchell, uh, who was the father of something called the moral obligation bond. Uh, John Mitchell was a, a lawyer. Uh, he was born just uh, actually um, uh, in the same year as Richard Nixon, but Nixon looked up to John Mitchell as if he were an older brother somehow, because Mitchell was very successful uh, in the practice of law in New York, was very comfortable rubbing elbows with the Rockefellers and going golfing with mayors and congressmen and judges in all of the 50 states where Mitchell's bond work took him. And those bonds were used by these executives and officials across the 50 states, this moral obligation bond that John Mitchell developed to build bridges, schools, fire departments, uh, even to finance things as small as a fire engine. Uh, and because of that network of contacts amongst politicians of both parties across the country, that's why, in fact, Richard Nixon asked his law partner at the time in the 1960s, John Mitchell, to become his campaign manager in 1968. So we are releasing these on the 50th anniversary of a terrible event, one day that lives in infamy in American history, the Kent State Massacre. But before we go to May 4th, 1970, we ought to recap for a few minutes, in not a comprehensive way. We're not Ken Burns. We're not uh, uh, Kernow or whatever that fellow's name is, Stanley Carnow. We're not a, a Vietnam historian, but President Nixon is elected in January. It takes off in January of 1969. What does he inherit on the war front? He, as Ken Kachigian, longtime confidant of the president, likes to say, Nixon is a war president. People have got to remember. What, does, what do they have to remember, James Rose? Nixon campaigned in 1968 on a plan uh, to uh, end the war. He is commonly mischaracterized as having campaigned on a secret plan to end the war. Uh, but he really never used those words, and it was really not a thrust of his campaign rhetoric that he had some secret plan to end the war. Uh, already in 1967, as a private citizen, 
having served eight years as vice president um, and having lost the, the race for governor in 1962 in California, and then returned to the law and fought his comeback. Uh, Nixon in 1967, before even running for president, um, had uh, published an influential article, I believe in Reader's Digest, uh, outlining his plan to reorient American U.S. foreign policy towards Asia with a specific eye toward opening up China. Uh, he remarked in that article in 1967, Nixon did, that uh, a country of such a large population uh, that's going to be so much a part of the future cannot be walled off from Western civilization. And, and so the opening to but of course, he became president during a time of Cold War confrontation with the Soviet Union, uh, one vital aspect of which, of course, was the long-running war in Vietnam. Uh, and by the time uh, Nixon and Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor, took office in the White House in January 1969, I believe something like 30,000 men had already died in Vietnam. Um, and uh, so Nixon wanted to end that carnage. Um, if, if your question, of course, is... to 1970. Uh, that's more than a year into Mr. Nixon's term. And uh, it was a very fiery time. Uh, you had um, the anti-war protesters escalating their tactics. You had mass protests on Washington, D.C. Uh, you had very dangerous, um, uh, violent terrorist groups like the Weather Underground and the Black Panthers that were active in that same time frame. You had bombings banks. Uh, you had routine rioting in various major cities. Uh, it was a very scary time that revolved around the core issue of the Vietnam War and also race relations at that time. Now, I'm a young man when this happened. I'm not a young man. I'm a, I'm a teenager. I'm a, I'm a boy. I'm in junior high. And all I remember is the president appearing every now and then and saying, we're taking another 20,000 troops out. It was a gradual and, for a young person, underappreciated to the Nixon presidency. And had he been successful in that as we approached the Cambodian incursion, Jaber? So the first year of the Nixon presidency saw um, uh, the commander-in-chief pursuing various means by which to end the war, but not entirely end the war on defeatist terms for the United States. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger rightly believed that for the United States to just stage a massive pullout of every American troop every American soldier from Vietnam would communicate a very dangerous message to our ally uh, that uh, the United States couldn't be counted on to honor its commitments in foreign policy uh, and in military conflicts. Um, it would have been very easy for President Nixon simply to withdraw all the troops and let uh, what ultimately did happen happen with, um, years earlier, which was that the communists in took power in Cambodia, neighboring Cambodia, which figures prominently in our discussion today. And of course, uh, Cambodia became the killing fields where a genocide occurred of two million people. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger were trying to forestall that kind of outcome uh, or forestall off that kind of outcome at the same time, maintaining American commitments and not projecting weakness around the world. The term that was ultimately used by the Nixon administration uh, to describe the overall effort here uh, was a clunky, IBM-era term called Vietnamization. Uh, the idea was to gradually transfer a greater burden, share of the burden of the fighting to uh, well-trained South Vietnamese troops, um, to use American air power to secure those objectives while withdrawing U.S. personnel. Don't, we must remember that at the time that Lyndon Johnson uh, 
uh, gave way to Richard Nixon in the Oval Office, uh, there were, um, as I say, I think 30,000 U.S. casualties um, inflicted over dating back to uh, the Eisenhower era, but principally to the Kennedy-Johnson era. Uh, and we were seeing 500 deaths a week. Um, body bags were returning home in a time of countercultural ferment. Uh, so Nixon and Kissinger tried to Vietnamize the war. At the same time, they were secretly conducting bombing operations in Cambodia. Why were they doing that? Uh, we know why secretly, because they didn't want to pay a political price for appearing to widen the war when they were talking about Vietnamization. But in military terms, uh, the secret bombing of Cambodia was, be, uh, was conceived because although Cambodia was a quote-unquote neutral country in the Vietnam conflict, um, the North Vietnamese hadn't regarded the neutrality of Cambodia and in fact used Cambodian territory for um, uh, bases from which North Vietnam and its proxy groups conducted offensive operations against U.S. and Viet South Vietnamese troops and uh, from which they also conducted resupply operations. So it was important that the U.S. take out those sanctuaries in Cambodia. Now, James, the most important thing you mentioned already is that when President Nixon takes office in January, the country is convulsing. And I often point to 1968 as the low point of post-Civil War American life, two assassination of leading figures, Martin Luther King and John F uh, Robert Kennedy, the riots outside of the Chicago Convention, massed, violent, and chaos, chaos. In the year and four months leading up to the Cambodian bombing and the revelation, and we'll talk about that in a minute, how would you characterize, especially from the vantage point of John Mitchell, with whom you were so intimately familiar through the book, The Strongman, the pulse of the American war opposition? So um, by the time President Nixon took office, uh, the United the the electorate had turned against the Vietnam. The, the, the story is told, perhaps apocryphally, of President Lyndon Johnson, who famously installed three television sets in the Oval Office to monitor news coverage of what was then starting to be called the media. Um, famous, it's supposedly, Lyndon Johnson saw a, a broadcast of Walter Cronkite, the anchor and managing editor of CBS Evening News at the time, uh, reportedly the most trusted man in America, who had gone to Vietnam and who proclaimed the war an unwinnable stalemate. Supposedly, the president trade in the Oval Office said, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. Um, and Middle America had indeed turned on the war because of the, the increasing casualties under President Johnson's stewardship of it. Um, there were other important developments. There was just in general uh, a kind of countercultural rebellious attitude towards almost all established authority at that time that was uh, summed up memorably by the great, great writer, the, uh, the, the late Tom Wolfe, called it radical chic. It was suddenly chic to be radical. Uh, and that meant um, opposing the war effort for sure. Um, so, but President Nixon also understood that um, what he called the silent majority of America didn't want, to, uh, didn't want to end the war on compromise terms, wanted to maintain America's prestige and power in, in the Cold War era, um, and didn't really care very much for students protesting on college campuses and burning things down. Um, and so approximately six months before the Kent State killing, in November 1969, President Nixon delivered uh, what many consider his finest address as president, um, and one that has been included in roundups of the 100 greatest speeches of the 20th century, his so-called silent majority speech of November, November 3, 1969. 
uh, in which he called on the great silent majority of Americans who don't protest, who don't throw rocks, who don't shout, um, and who want to see this war conclude successfully. Um, and um, he, Nixon was successful in that. We have to remember one other fact, two other political facts about President Nixon, if you, if you, if you don't mind. One is that when he took office in January 1969, it marked the first time in 120 years that a president took office with both houses of Congress under opposition control from him. There was also a time when the news media were starting to, uh, to, to commence their current practices with regard to what they report, what they don't report. Uh, they had protected public figures from a lot of scandalous things over the preceding decades. But once President Nixon took office, it was almost as if the news media decided the gloves were off and they were going to publish lots of different things that would be scandalous. Um, the other fact um, is that um, uh, Richard Nixon ran on the national ticket five times. There's only one other politician in American history of whom that could be said. That was Franklin Roosevelt. And so it behooves us to consider Richard Nixon as a unique politician or one of uh, a very rare category of American politicians who had a real affinity with the American electorate over a long span of time. Only that way would you get to run on five national tickets. So that affinity with the American electorate enabled Nixon to understand that the protesters who were gaining the most prominence on nightly news weren't necessarily representative of the uh, sentiments about the war and many other things that were held by what he called the silent majority. The collapsing consensus about what the war meant and about how Americans ought to conduct themselves was growing to a crescendo in the spring of 1970 when President Nixon decided in support of his diplomacy with China and in an effort to Vietnam, uh, Vietnamize, as you put it, James Rosen, the war that the operation involving Cambodia would be made public. Bombing had already been underway, but this became a massive military operation into what was perceived as a neutral non-combatant by most Americans, even though it was neither a non-combatant nor really neutral since Prince Sihanouk, who was the titular ruler of much of Cambodia, did not control that crucial portion of the country through which the Ho Chi Minh Trail ran and from which the North Vietnamese regular army and the Viet Cong, the guerrilla movement of the South, which were operationally the same, were using to prepare for and stage deadly attacks on America. What did the president unveil in the spring of 1970 that sent the growing anti-war movement into, uh, into a greater frenzy about the White House? Come April, the end of April 1970, the various uh, military offensives and simultaneous uh, peace overtures uh, through back channels that uh, Nixon and Kissinger had been pursuing had not produced the desired results of uh, the North coming to terms uh, with the South and the U.S. We must also remember that North Vietnam was being backed by the Soviets and by the Chinese. Uh, so this was, in essence, a proxy war um, that, that uh, took the guise of the Vietnamese Civil War. Um, with those overtures and offensive not, uh, offensive not having produced the desired outcome, uh, President Nixon made a very strategically bold decision, one he knew would be um, uh, inflammatory in the current political climate of 1969-1970, to mount what the administration called an incursion into purportedly neutral Cambodia to wipe out those, those uh, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong bases that you mentioned, uh, and those sanctuaries, uh, and to do great damage to the, the resupply routes uh, that, that were known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail. 
Um, and the president announced this in a live televised uh, evening speech from, uh, from the White House uh, on April 30, 1970. It marked the first time, by the way, as presidential stagecraft goes, Hugh, uh, that the chief executive or the commander in chief in addressing the, the nation on television uh, moved away from the desk and actually used uh, a map of the theater, the military theater. Uh, that map, uh, I believe, is uh, now proudly displayed uh, in the Nixon uh, Presidential Birthplace and Museum out in Yorba Linda, California. Um, and uh, in any case, um, in that speech, the president called it an incursion, not an invasion. It was meant to signify that this was a limited, time-limited, and um, resource-limited offensive. But nonetheless, the, the U.S. was moving militarily into Cambodia uh, to take the fight in the war to the North Vietnamese in this purportedly neutral country. That was a very, again, I, in, in 1970, I'm 14 years old, but what floats through my mind is the term parachute. The president put an emphasis on it. It was a, uh, a catchy phrase. There were many associated with it. But what was the message that the anti-war movement received, James Rosen? What was the, by the way, the advice that the Secretary of State William Rogers, the Secretary of Defense Mel Laird, Henry Kissinger, the National Security Advisor, and Attorney General John Mitchell were giving to the president both about his military strategy and the likely result at home. So amongst Nixon's advisors, very few were in favor of uh, the U.S. military moving into Cambodia uh, on this basis. Uh, among those who favored it, by the way, was Vice President Spiro Agnew and Attorney General Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell's, uh, we should say, uh, Mitchell's influence extended far beyond the matters or the purview uh, that would normally uh, accord to an Attorney General of the United States. He was a principal advisor to President Nixon on foreign policy, the opening to China, and this decision to uh, launch the incursion into Cambodia. For, on the part of the uh, the other advisors who 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 opposed the movement, who opposed Parrot's Peak, uh, the feeling was that this would inflame the country, that it would be taken as a widening of the war at a time when the administration was promising to wind down the war and Vietnamize it. Uh, and that indeed was the message that the anti-war left, uh, which again was divisible into various groups, the non-violent anti-war left and the violent anti-war left, most prominent among them, uh, took from the operation, that this was a widening of the war um, and a renunciation of the, of the president's previous promises. And yeah. they were angry about it. James, as we wrap up part one, I'd like you to put on not just your historian's hat and the author of The Strong Man, and you know Nixon like very few prominent journalists in America know Nixon, but you now report for Sinclair Broadcasting, previously for Fox. You've been covering Donald Trump very, very closely for many, many years. And people think we're at a point now vis-a-vis -vis President Trump that's never been seen before. How would you compare the spring of 2020 in the middle of a pandemic and the spring of 1970 in the middle of a war? We are obliged to begin by noting, I think, Hugh, that both presidencies uh, witnessed impeachment trials. Uh, President Nixon's aborted when he resigned rather than face almost certain impeachment uh, in the House. Um, and, of course, President Trump having prevailed in, and been acquitted in his Senate trial uh, for impeachment articles. So those there are very few presidencies of which we can say that. And so that is the most defining feature that binds the two together. Uh, I would say that the vitriol directed at Donald Trump exceeds even that which we saw for the previous uh, pantheon of loathed Republicans 
uh, from Richard Nixon to George W. Bush to Dick Cheney. Uh, the, 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 the hatred for Donald Trump is, is unique. Now, President Trump's behavior is unique. Uh, I'm not, that's not to say that he warrants that vitriol, uh, but he certainly contributes to the atmosphere of, um, of coarseness and political um, serratedness, I would say, that, that, that prevails in our time. Uh, President Nixon, by contrast, was Quaker and someone who um, took great pains to project propriety in both manner, dress, speech, uh, in his public appearances in, that, in a way that was very different from the way uh, President Trump conducts himself. Uh, but both men knew that they were hated. And both men, uh, I had this insight, Hugh, walking past Trump Tower in New York right after the election, that here was this extraordinary building. Here's a man who, um, who owns Mar-a-Lago, which meant that for many years it was Donald Trump's ring that the highest of the high members of the, of the high priests of the establishment kissed because they wanted very badly to be a member of the club that he owned. Richard Nixon was vice president of the United States at the age of 39. In essence, both men sat uh, at the very heart of the American establishment and yet felt profoundly isolated from it, marginalized by it, ridiculed by it. And I think both men um, both uh, crave and scorn the very establishments um, that do, that, with which they, they did battle and do battle. Now, James Rosen, as we transition to part two, I pray we don't have a moment as uniquely awful as the opposition to Richard Nixon's was, as Kent State became. But we are in the midst of a pandemic that's already claimed 60,000 lives when we sit down to have this conversation. And worldwide, it's going to sweep through the third world and, and claim millions of lives. It's just, to me, inevitable that it will by the time it has run its course. Pray for intervention, pray for therapies, pray for vaccines, but it's just terribly deadly. Wars ravaged the 20th century, disease are ravaging the 21st. Do you think? that the country has the potential for the kind of rending event that Kent State became in 2020, that Kent State was in 1970. I do. Um, and maybe some would argue that we've already seen those kinds of searing events uh, play out in Ferguson or uh, in other venues, uh, where, and in Baltimore uh, not so long ago, where we saw rioting uh, on a scale that was reminiscent of what we saw in the so-called ghettos of the 1960s. Um, this is a politically uh, and culturally ours is a serrated time. It's 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 often noxious. It's it's often um, bitter and and um, uncivil. And so yes, I do see the potentials for that kind of unrest. Um, but who's to say? You know, we also have kind of um, evolved from 1970 in the ways we spend our leisure time, um, and we're also plugged into electronics now that uh, maybe there's a kind of a dopamine effect that prevents uh, serious political agitation. We'll get to Kent State uh, in due course in our conversation, but it was uh, contrary to much of the received wisdom that has been promulgated in history books about Kent State, it was a premeditated event. Um, I wonder if the prevalence of iPhones and iPads and iPods and everything else today uh, makes it uh, unlikely that we'll see that kind of premeditated event today. I don't know. Come back for part two of our three-part series on Kent State and the Richard Nixon presidency from the Richard Nixon Foundation. I am Hugh Youth, the president of the foundation. James Rosen will be back for part two from Inside the Beltway. Thanks for watching part one.